Well, if you have your Bible, please do turn with me uh, to that little letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon. I said last week we were probably going to take three weeks in this letter, but as I studied this week, I came to see that the last section hangs together better as a whole. So I'm going to aim to make it through to the end this morning. For anyone who missed last week, we saw that this is a letter addressing a relational conflict that had arisen between a bond servant named Onesimus and his master Philemon, who was an old friend of the Apostle Paul. Onesimus, we learned, had wronged his master Philemon in some way, and he had run away from him to go and hide in the city of Rome. This was a fairly serious crime that carried some serious potential consequences in the ancient world. Runaway slaves, if, were, uh, if their master found them, um, they could be beaten, they could be imprisoned, even sentenced to death. Amazingly, this runaway servant Onesimus crossed paths with the Apostle Paul in Rome. And we learned through the letter, the content in the letter, that he got saved through the Apostle Paul's ministry of preaching the gospel. It's amazing. Paul felt the need to send Onesimus back to Philemon, and he writes a letter as a mediator to call Philemon to welcome Onesimus back into the house church, into the home, that, that, into the house church that met in Philemon's home. Philemon was to forgive Onesimus and to make peace with him. And in the introduction, we looked at the last or the first seven verses last week, and we saw in the prayer of verse six particularly, Paul prays that the way Philemon would handle this conflict would serve to manifest the grace of the gospel. It would be something that would be spiritually refreshing for the church to see. Because though this letter was addressed primarily to Philemon, Paul also wanted it to be read out publicly in front of the whole church. It would be an instructive discipleship moment for the church to look on as Philemon would welcome back Onesimus with grace. It would manifest the good things that are in us for the sake of Christ, the Apostle Paul said. And here's what is striking for us today. God has seen to it that this short little letter, the shortest of the Apostle Paul's letters, has been preserved and included for us in Scripture because he knows in this present age, we also will run into relational conflicts in our lives. How are we to manage relationship conflicts as Christians? That's what this little letter is in the New Testament to teach us. And the main lesson, as we saw last week, that this letter teaches us is this. The way you conduct yourself as a Christian in a relational conflict will either put on display the grace of the gospel or it will put on display your sin. We are to strive to manage our conflicts in a gospel-shaped manner. So that was a recap of what we saw last week. Now this week, after the introduction in the first seven verses, in verse 8 to 22, we come to the main body of the letter. 
And I want to draw your attention straight away to verse 17 because that's the main request Paul is making of Philemon. Verse 17, Paul says, So Philemon, if you consider me your partner, receive him, that is Onesimus, as you would receive me. So Paul wants Philemon to forgive and welcome Onesimus back. But Paul knows that it could be tempting for Philemon not to do this. We know, many of us from experience, that when someone wrongs us or offends us, when someone hurts us, It can be tempting to withhold forgiveness, to be harsh towards that person, and bitter towards them. We can hold bitterness in our hearts towards those who offend us. But the Apostle Paul, knowing that this is not the way the Christian who has experienced the grace of God is to manage conflicts, Paul reminds Philemon of three great truths to help him overcome that temptation to be harsh and bitter towards Onesimus. So what this passage this morning gives us is three great truths to remember and inform how we manage our own various conflicts in a way that honors the Lord. So last week I said that this week, this morning, we would be thinking carefully about how we actually manage our conflicts in a gospel-shaped manner. When we feel the temptation towards someone who's hurt and offended us to distance ourselves and to hold it against them, how can we overcome that so that we can manage the conflict in a way that demonstrates the grace that we have received in the gospel? That's what this morning is all about. So I'm saying three truths to help you, if you're in the midst of a conflict now or in the future when you will be, three truths to help you manage that conflict in a way that reflects the grace of the gospel. I hope this will be really practically helpful for you. Truth number one that Paul points Philemon to is this. Philemon, remember, the Christian is called to practice love and goodness even towards their offenders. That's the first thing Paul puts up front here in this letter. After his prayer in verse 6 that Philemon's conflict would serve to manifest the gospel, look down with me at verse 8 where Paul writes, Accordingly, so in light of this, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Paul knows as an apostle, he can weigh in with authority and and command Philemon to do what's required for the sake of the obedience of faith. He could command Philemon to welcome Onesimus back into the church there, but he knows that if Philemon doesn't own this decision to forgive and welcome Onesimus back, there will be no real demonstration of gospel grace, just a reluctant act of duty under compulsion. So Paul is giving Philemon space to practice love towards Onesimus. 
And there earlier in verse 5, Paul spoke of the love and faith that Philemon had towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. So Paul is creating space and saying, Philemon, I want this to be from your heart. In the second part of verse 9, Paul then says he's making his appeal as an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, you could be tempted to see this as Paul taking out the violin and trying to pull Philemon's heartstrings a bit, but I think it's just another way of distancing himself from the apostolic authority card. He's saying, look, I'm not making my appeal here in an authoritative, forceful way. I'm making it as a fellow Christian brother an old man who has made sacrifices for the gospel myself. And the very fact that he's a prisoner would remind Philemon of that. In verse 10 then, Paul mentions Onesimus' name for the first time. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, we saw last week that this is Paul's way of saying that Onesimus had been born again, became a Christian through Paul's ministry of preaching the gospel. And Paul refers to Onesimus as his spiritual child. It's, it's like he's been born again. He's like a baby Christian. And Paul says, I'm like his spiritual father. He's like my spiritual child. And I'm appealing to you, Philemon, for him, for Onesimus. In verse 11, Paul points out that formerly Onesimus was useless to Philemon. But now, he, Paul says, he is indeed useful both to Philemon and to Paul. It's interesting, I read this week that servants from this area of Asia Minor were known for their laziness. And I think this little statement of verse 11 certainly speaks of how the gospel brings transformation in a person's character. Paul's essentially saying, look, in the past, Onesimus was just a useless, lazy servant, but now he's been changed by the gospel. He's a new man in Christ. He's useful to you and to me. Then in verse 12, Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul has clearly drawn comfort and encouragement from Onesimus and the ministry Onesimus has been giving to the Apostle Paul. Onesimus has clearly been a great blessing to Paul whilst he's under house arrest in Rome. Maybe Onesimus was able to do errands for Paul, send out messages on his behalf. Paul says, look, in sending him back, I'm sending my very heart. In verse 13, he said, I wanted to keep him with me so that he could continue to help me. But then in verse 14, he says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Now, Paul is clearly appealing for Onesimus to be welcomed back, and he's basing that appeal on Philemon's call as a Christian to practice love and goodness. Paul's not going to force anything because he knows forcing the issue will lead to some kind of reluctant, dutiful obedience. He wants to stand back and see Philemon working out his faith and love in this situation so that it will reflect the gospel. I think this is really instructive for us. We are called 
by Jesus Christ as Christians to practice love and goodness even towards those who have offended us. If you want to know where Jesus commanded us to do that, we could go to a number of places, but perhaps the clearest is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, where Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. In addressing our conflicts, and I know there are a number of us here who are involved in conflicts because, as we said last week, we're Christians. That doesn't make us super saints with holy humility halos around us. We are all coming from different backgrounds. We have different views on how stuff should be done. We're from different generations and stages in sanctification. We're always going to run up against difficulties at one time or another. And so we're here to learn how to handle that in a Christian manner. So when we're addressing our conflicts, if you're in the midst of a conflict with someone and you're sort of trying to figure out how to manage it well, we start off and say, right, okay, first, I am someone who is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I am called by him to try and practice love and goodness towards this person. Yes, they've offended me. Yes, they've hurt me. Yes, they're my enemy. But I am called somehow to try and be loving towards them and to practice goodness. I remember that the world, people who are not Christians, are not under the same obligation that I am because they don't have a Lord. Now, they should be obeying the Lord, but we remember I have a Lord. It means sometimes I have to do things that I don't want to do. Paul demonstrates this in verse 13 when he sort of said, I wanted to keep Onesimus with me, but I know that it's better that I send him back to work towards peace and reconciliation. So we remember, I have a Lord. He wants me to practice love and goodness in this situation. Because the Lord asks this of me, I will try and do it. We always remember, once again, in addressing a conflict, we can't control everyone else's reaction, but we can control our own actions. So think of your own conflict. You're called to practice love and goodness towards that person that you're struggling with. What does that look like? I think 1 Corinthians 13.4 gives us the answer. Love is patient and kind. So first of all, you're thinking, I'm called to be patient towards this person. And you might be honest and say, they're really doing my head in. But I'm called to be patient. I'm called to be kind. I don't really feel like I want to be, but my Lord calls me to be patient and kind towards them. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That's how you're to try and practice love and goodness towards this person. Paul's saying, Philemon, remember, you're called to practice love, and that love is to be modeled on the way the Lord himself has loved you. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse, verse 1, we are to love one another as God in Christ has loved us, and Christ has given himself up for us. And so Paul is saying to Philemon, as I make this request that you would welcome this one who's offended you and as you're tempted to hold that against him. As I make this request, you keep this in mind. 
as a Christian, you're called to love and goodness. Now for us, when we're tempted to say, I'm not going to engage with that person who's offended me. I refuse to even talk to them. Ask yourself, does that reflect the call that the Lord Jesus has given you to practice love and goodness towards your enemies? Reconciliation may not always be possible in conflicts. Some relationships are left in a place where peace is made, but an ongoing relationship may not be possible. But as much as possible, we are to manage our conflicts with a desire to be loving and good towards the other party. Listen, if you choose the other path and give yourself to bitterness and enmity, you will be the one that's eaten up by it. So remember, the Christian is called to practice love and goodness. That is the first truth that Paul lays down to help Philemon overcome his temptation to hold it against Onesimus. Truth number two that he points to then, this is so helpful. Paul calls Philemon to remember God is sovereign over this conflict and has good purposes in it. Now, this is subtle, but it's really here in the text. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, let's just step back for a moment. Look at what Paul is doing here to help Philemon. Paul's trying to discern the possible workings of a sovereign and good God through the conflict that Philemon is moving through. He's saying, Philemon, let's think about how God might be at work in this situation for your good, for Onesimus' good, and for the good of the local church that you're both part of. It's as if Paul's saying, maybe recognizing the sovereignty of God will set you free from your need to be bitter about the whole thing. Philemon, remember, God is at work in this. Even in this broken and sinful situation, God is at work to bring about good purposes through it. Maybe he's ordained this whole set of events, Paul says, to save Onesimus and to have him restored back to you, no longer just as a bond servant, but actually as a brother who you can love. Maybe God's been at work to cause this, this situation, this tension, this stress. Maybe God's ordaining it and is sovereign over it to do good things in your heart and in Onesimus's heart and for the good of the church. Here's the principle that I want us to take away this morning from this. When you're in the midst of a conflict, someone's hurt you and you're annoyed at them and you want to hold it against them. Seek the purpose of God behind the conflict and trust God always that he's at work for good. You've heard me say this many times. There are three 
steel girders of truth that you've got to have driven down into your heart to live as a Christian. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is good. Number three, God has a good plan even in this. That gives you stability when everything around you turns to mush. And Paul, with those three girders in place, is saying, Philemon, let's try to discern his sovereign hand for good even in this. And for you, in the midst of whatever frustration you might be in or might be in at some point in your life, in those moments where you can be calm and where you can be composed, try to think through what God might be doing in the conflict that is for your good. Romans 8.28 is your foundation stone here. That is the passage that says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, all things either means all things or it doesn't. Step back and ask, in whatever stressful situation you're in this morning, it may be a conflict, but it may be something else, something that's stressing you out, making you sick to your stomach, stop and ask, what might God be doing in this? How is he exposing my sin? So when you're impatient, you're angry, and you're bitter, maybe God's bringing to the surface sin that needs to be repented of and confessed and put to death. Then you could ask, what is the Lord teaching me about his character? When you're tempted to be impatient, you think of how, how patient God is towards you. And maybe you'll start to learn something about the patience of God. And you see, the closer, the more you get to know God, the more you become like God, and the more you begin to be sanctified and to grow. Maybe you could ask, how's God trying to mature me through this? Isn't it so It's difficult, isn't it, that that person in your workplace that does test your patience every single day could be a way your patience is being grown. So step back and say, okay, all things. God works all things together for our good. So in some way, even in this, he's at work. What is he trying to teach me through this? William Cowper in his famous hymn said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Think of all the examples in Scripture we have of people who had to look underneath conflict to discern the sovereign good hand of God. Where does your mind go to straight away? For me, my mind goes first and foremost to Joseph in the end of the book of Genesis. Think of his story. Betrayed by his brothers, they wanted to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery. Would he not have been tempted to have been better for the rest of his life? If that was not enough, then later on he was betrayed by Potiphar's wife, accused falsely of sexual immorality, thrown into prison for it for years. Would you not have been tempted to have hold bitterness in your heart? If that wasn't enough, when he helped the cupbearer to get out of prison and said, remember me, the cupbearer forgot him and left him to languish. After it all, 
when his brothers come to him and say, Joseph, our father said just before he died that you're not to hold our sins against us. What does Joseph say? Genesis 50, 19 and 20. Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. He meant it for good. For the saving of many lives. That is what is happening today. Look at Joseph. Step back to discern the sovereign hand of God. If I was not put in this position now that I'm in, Israel would die. They wouldn't get grain. He meant it for good. We could go to many other places from Scripture, but here's something I found just in more contemporary life that I find constantly helpful. It's a difficult story about a theologian called, called John Golden Gay. He was a professor of Old Testament at Fuller Seminary. Some of you will have heard me share this before. He nursed his wife, Anne, to her death in the year 2009. Anne, his wife, had multiple sclerosis for 43 years. It eventually left her in a wheelchair. She was unable to speak or swallow just before she died. John Goldingay has written a commentary on the book of Job, and he writes the following. Job goes through his pain the same way as we do, and he illustrates how the fact that we do not know what might explain our suffering, what purpose of God might have on it, that does not constitute the slightest suggestion that this suffering has no explanation. After all, Job could never have dreamed of the explanation of what was going on behind the scenes with him. Then Golden Gay goes on to write, speaking very personally of his wife, I cannot imagine the story which makes it okay for God to have made my wife Anne go through what she has gone through. But I can't imagine that there is such a story. You know when you look at the back of a piece of embroidery, the tapestry is messy, but when you turn it over, you see that each strand, each messy strand has a place. This is reflected so beautifully in the Getty hymn, The Perfect Wisdom of Our God, where we hear these words. Oh, grant me wisdom from above to pray for peace and cling to love and teach me humbly to receive the sun and rain of your sovereignty. Each strand of sorrow has a place within this tapestry of grace. So through the trials, I choose to say your perfect will in your perfect way. And the key word that Paul uses in verse 15 is that word, perhaps. Did you see it? For this perhaps is why he was parted from you. We want to be careful, you see, not to say that we can figure out the omniscient designs of God all the time. We don't want to say, definitely this is what God is doing through this. But I think it's right to follow Paul's example here and to sometimes step back and say, Perhaps this is what the Lord is doing here. There's a higher purpose 
in our pain. None of it is wasted. And Paul writes this and points this out to Philemon because he wants to help him not be bitter and sinful towards Onesimus. He wants to help Philemon to lift his eyes beyond the immediacy of the conflict and the hurt and the pain. He wants to invite Philemon to trace God's sovereign hand, saying, perhaps this will release you from your temptation to withhold forgiveness. Remembering that God is at work in our conflicts can have the effect of helping us to handle those conflicts in a more God-honoring manner. So Paul points Philemon to the second truth to help him in his conflict. Remember, God is sovereign over this and has good purposes in it. I hope that helps you. But he does then finally point to a third truth. Philemon, if you're tempted to withhold forgiveness, remember, forgiveness involves the bearing of a wrong, not the belittling of a wrong. That's really important. Paul makes his request in verse 17. He wants Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive the Apostle Paul himself, as a brother, someone to be welcomed and honored and received warmly. This would require Philemon to forgive Onesimus, and Paul knows the wrong done to Philemon could be another reason he will be tempted to withhold forgiveness. He knows that when Philemon thinks, hang on, but he owes me money for the time he was away. He owes me for what he stole or whatever it was. Philemon, this could, this could have tempted him to withhold forgiveness. Paul knows that, and so, demonstrating amazing Christ-likeness in his role as a mediator, Paul writes in verse 18, Philemon, if Onesimus has wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to my account. In verse 19, I'll repay it, and then he drops in to say nothing of your owing me your very self. It's funny, isn't it? By not mentioning it, he mentions it. You see, Philemon probably himself had become a Christian under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul's saying, look, I will cover. If there's a debt and that's going to hold you back from forgiving and welcoming him back, I'll cover it. But he seems to be assuming that Philemon will know that he's the one who should bear the wrong himself. But here's the point I want to make out of this little interaction of verses 17 to 20. Paul doesn't belittle the wrong that was done to Philemon. He offers to bear it for him. This was a beautiful gospel-shaped act from the Apostle Paul. It stood to remind Philemon of how we are called to reflect Christ in the way we manage relational conflicts. Paul was certainly doing so. You see, when someone wrongs you, you have two options. Seek to make your offender suffer through going quiet, relational distancing, speaking about them publicly to damage their name. 
That's your first option. Or, what's the second option? You can forgive them. But forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. And this can be agony. It can be like a death to us. But as Tim Keller so helpfully reminds us in The Reason for God, he says it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the living death of bitterness and cynicism. You see, to forgive requires willingness to sit down and work through things. We don't sweep the past wrong under the mat as if it didn't happen. We work through it and choose continually forgiveness. Bearing the wrong is not belittling the wrong. Our perfect example of this is found in Jesus. He bore the wrong. He said, Father, whatever debt they owe against you, I will bear it. He bore the wrong so that we could be forgiven. Perhaps seeing that will give us the strength in our own relational conflicts to reflect Christ by saying, I will bear the wrong. That doesn't mean you belittle the wrong, but it may just be the very thing when it's nailed to the cross with Christ, it may be the very thing that sets you free from the living death of bitterness. As I mentioned last week, there are so many beautiful gospel echoes across this little letter. We are Onesimus. We are the ones who offended our master God and ran away from him. Christ, our mediator, has borne our wrong so that we can be reconciled to God. God bears our wrong so that we can be reconciled to him. Paul knows Philemon's handling of this conflict in a gospel-shaped manner will be refreshing for the whole church because it will put the gospel on display. And so in verse 20, he urges Philemon saying, oh, refresh my heart in Christ. In 21 to 25, then he states his confidence in Philemon. He says his plan is to come to visit soon, that a guest room's to be prepared. He's probably wanting to come, make sure everyone's okay. And then he gives his usual parting greetings. Listen, as we step back from this book, here is the point of this letter being in the New Testament. It's to teach us, as Christians, the way you conduct yourself in a relational conflict will either put on display the gospel or it will put your sinfulness on display. Strive to manage your conflicts in a gospel-shaped manner. When the church manages conflicts in a way that does not reflect the gospel, the church becomes like the world. And let me tell you, the world is tired of relational strife being managed poorly. We are called to something far better, a far better story. If you're struggling, remember your call as a Christian to love, to practice goodness. Remember the sovereignty of God. 
Remember, bearing the wrong is not belittling the wrong. And remember how patient and gracious God is towards you. Remember what he bore, the wrong he bore, so that you could be reconciled to him. Seek to reflect that grace and leave the results then up to God. You can only do so much. So in closing, I want you to think about a relationship in your life that's not the way you would like it to be. Think of that person or that people, that offense, and ask yourself this question. How can I love this person, even in this? Maybe it could be just starting to pray for them. Ask yourself, Lord, what are you teaching me about through this? Pray, Lord, help me reflect the gospel of grace even in this. Let them go in your heart. Forgive them. Leave them in the hands of the Lord. Make peace. If further reconciliation is not possible, well, as far as it depends on you, make sure your own heart is at peace and holds out that loving forgiveness. You may have questions that come out of this due to your own particular circumstances. If so, talk to a trusted Christian friend about them. If you'd like to speak to myself or one of our elders, speak to us about it, because I know every situation comes with its own complexities. You know, for some people, the unforgiveness and the hurt that they hold can even be towards a church. That wasn't in my notes, but I felt it very clear that I should say that. In closing, in the year Queen Elizabeth visited Ireland, reflecting on that visit in her Christmas speech of that year, she said these words, Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families. It can restore friendships. And it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. Let's strive here at Great Vic to manage our conflicts in a way that manifests the power of God's love. Let's pray. Father, there is a, a stillness over us this morning. And we pray that you would give us wisdom now to know how to respond to this message practically, perhaps it will involve us starting to pray for that person that we have felt such bitterness towards. Perhaps it will involve a response of writing a letter or a card or making a phone call or sending a text. Perhaps it will be an act of just quietly offering forgiveness and making peace in our own hearts towards someone who's offended us and leaving it there with you. Father, by your Spirit, guide us in our response. And please help us 
to be people who practice love and goodness, who remember always your sovereignty, and who in bearing wrong don't belittle wrong. Father, our beautiful and perfect example of seeing behind what looked like a messy situation is seen in the cross. Over the cross, those words could have been written, God meant it for good. At the time, it didn't look good. But Father, thank you that each strand of sorrow had a place. And within that tapestry of grace, we see your glory, your love, your grace, your loving reconciliation of us, wayward Onesimuses, sinners who had offended you, brought back through the mediator, Father, that was your Son. Oh, Father, help us not just to be orthodox evangelicals in the way we speak about the gospel. Help us to be orthodox evangelicals who embody the gospel. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, I chose this hymn, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. Sometimes we need, always we need the Lord to be working out that gracious mind of Christ in our own lives. So let's respond and make this our prayer from our hearts as we close this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.